If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 3 through 20 today. As we continue to examine this wonderful portion of Scripture together. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Lord, we do thank you for this passage that you have given to us and for the challenges that it has for us. So, Lord, I do pray that you would help us to mind these things seriously and ask that you would help to open our eyes to where we may be falling and help give us encouragement and hope to draw more towards light. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage that's before us seems almost like it was tailor-made for our time. 
something that is warning against sexual immorality, greed, and an improper use of our language seems to describe our culture to a T. But this has been relevant for every year that it's been written, because this is applied to every culture. This is what is in the human heart and something that needs to be dealt with, something that needs to be freed from. Now, none of these concepts that we're going to look at today are new to us. These are things in one way, shape, or form we have covered at some point already in this letter. We've been told to be careful how we use our sexuality. We've been told how careful we are to be in using our words. And we have been told to refrain from covetousness in other places. So why is it that Paul is repeating this to us here? Hasn't he already said this? Isn't parchment kind of expensive? Why are we spending more time with these concepts? And I think it's because these problems are so prevalent, because so many cultures have had to, this has been addressing them right between the eyes, is we need to hear warnings over and over again. Something that you hear of a warning over and over again means that they take it rather seriously and something that we need to sit up and pay attention to. The first of these things doesn't surprise us. We all, at least at this point, are still trained to say that sexual immorality is a really bad sin and we should avoid it. There's not a whole lot of discussion there, at least within the church. The culture is a different story, but we'll get to them. But you'll notice the other things that he aligns with sexual immorality. That he will put things like telling an off-color joke or being covetous on something. And these are sins that are so serious that they shouldn't even be named among us. What is Paul getting at? Why should we take these things so seriously? Well, we're going to cover that as we look. The first thing we're going to see in our two points, which you can see on the back of your prayer guide as an insert in the bulletin, the first is that God will judge abusers of his good gifts. God will judge abusers of his good gifts. But point number two is that we should call such abusers to join in the wise life of worship. There is hope for those that are in verses three through seven. And that's what we are wanting to call them to. So let's jump in and take a look at what Paul is saying here. These are things, as again, I mentioned, we tend to look at sexual sin as, ah, this is the big sin. And we are right in thinking that. Sexuality is a beautiful gift that God has given to us. And we should operate within its parameters. Namely, that the only expression that we have for that is within marriage. It's not between just you and the computer screen. This is a gift that God has given to us and needs to be used exactly how he says. But then notice that he goes on and talks about covetousness as well and about foolish talk. And then he goes on in verse 6 to, to tell us in no uncertain terms that these are the things that God will punish the sons of disobedience for, those who practice these things. And I think what this reveals to us, and maybe why this seems shocking to us, is because we have gotten used to those other expressions. It's become very easy to get used to covetousness, because that's how our country runs. To a point where if I was to walk into the room and see someone quickly try to hide a magazine that they were reading underneath their chair, 
I'd be relieved to find out that it was just a catalog of boats or guns instead of something else. But here in this passage, if we are lusting after things, that God will take this just as seriously as lusting after people. Because what this is telling us is that our heart is not with God. By the way, when we're talking about covetousness, notice how he goes on and later talks about that that is an idolater. Someone who has placed their hope, their happiness, their reason for existence in this thing, whatever that is. Whatever you fill the blank with, I would not be able to live without X, or I won't be happy unless X, or fill in the blank of the last time I was really angry was when blank was threatened. Whatever fits in that blank, that's what we worship. That's what we gain our hope from. And God is not a fan of that. Not because he is jealous and capricious, but because he has designed you to be, to need far more than what can fill in that blank if it's not him. We can only derive our hope and joy and peace and reason for believing from him. And when we lose that, everything else goes astray. When we are trying to defend something here that we can see, we will do anything that's necessary, including violating God's commands. That's why he takes this thing so seriously. Same thing with foolish talk or crude joking. As we covered last week, what we say reveals what's down here. If something comes out of our mouth, we can say, oh, I didn't really mean that. It's like, well, but you still said it, didn't you? It's a revealing of what's down there. No one can, contrary to the popular statement, no one actually knows your heart. You only can show your heart based on what is said. And here, when he talks about there is no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, all of those things are to be out of place. But the Lord doesn't then just give us as the solution a roll of duct tape and say, it's like, well, if we just don't say anything, then we can avoid these commands. Because he calls us to do something with our words. Namely, and instead that there may be thanksgiving. Have you ever been around someone who is just really good at encouragement? Or someone who just does not spend a whole lot of time criticizing, but spends a lot more time encouraging you? Aren't they a blessing to be around? Isn't it refreshing in our day where everything is about negativity, which drives clicks and views? It seems almost strange to find someone who is just thankful for what the Lord's doing. We almost look at them and say, what's wrong with you? Why are you so thankful? You must have a good pharmacist. It's like, no, we're just obeying the commands that God has given to us. Because there actually is quite a bit for us to be thankful for. Even in the depths of what we see here in our world, we still have hope. We of all people should be, have the greatest reason for thanksgiving and the greatest reason for praise. So therefore, we should keep this instrument for that use instead of piling it in with all these other things that don't build up. God has a much higher purpose for what it is that he, for the gifts that he has given to us. Let's not abuse them. And again, 
he brings to us this warning that those of us that will ignore these warnings will find ourselves with the judgment of God. Whether here in this life or in eternity, these things are not to be trifled with. These are not little things that we just ignore. These are things that we need to take seriously. These are things that Jesus died for. So we need to treat his sacrifice with respect. And then we get on to verse 7. And in fact, he takes this thing so seriously that we should not become partners with those who do that. What does this mean? Does this mean that you cannot be friends with the person who claims that he is a homosexual? Does this mean that if your coworkers use bad language that you must never speak with them again? Many people think that. But that's not what this text is calling us to do. For how would they know the gospel? They need to have encounters with us. The difference is is that we don't become partners with them in this partaking sense. The word that he uses here of partners is the same word that he used back in these earlier chapters to talk about uniting together in the church. So partnering with somebody, I mean, intertwining your life with them to the point that you participate in those activities yourself. In fact, Paul addressed this in, uh, specifically in 1 Corinthians uh, 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. He is responding to an earlier communication that we, have, we don't have. And he had sent with them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Here's what he says. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, I am not saying shun all sinners because otherwise there will be no one to talk to. We have a people, those that are trapped in these things need the gospel to be preached to them. Now be careful. That we continue to live as light in your life, in their lives. And don't join them in these activities. It's like, well, I'm trying to reach them, so I'm trying to understand the lifestyle. I'm trying to contextualize to my group of people so they'll accept me if I use this language or tell these jokes or watch these films. That's not what we need to do. Yes, Jesus ate with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. He did not join in those activities but call them to repentance. That's what we're to do. That's exactly what he tells us to do here in verses 8 and 9. Backing up to verse 7, Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. As commentators have pointed out, notice that it's not saying that you were in darkness, but now you have been brought into light, but that you were darkness. And now you are light. It's a fundamental transformation that's taken place here. We used to be in these earlier verses. Maybe not all of them. But I don't think that there's anyone of us in this room that was not touched by something that was said here in those first few verses. But here now God has called us out of that. Not only taken us out of darkness, but taken the darkness out of us. And is instead put in light, not from within us, but from within himself. 
by being united to Christ, who is the light, now we become light as well. Now, what are we supposed to do with it? We're supposed to let it shine. Go out into the world. Be an example for what Christ can do. And then now it says to walk as children of light. And then he describes what that is here. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then again, Paul warns us in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Notice the them there, as commentators have pointed out, this is the sins to show people that where they're going, what they're believing is a lie. You don't have to attack the person, but we do need to attack what's attacking them. We need to be honest with that and to make sure that we're not participating in those same things. Someone who is trying to film an anti-smoking ad is not going to be very effective if they are smoking in the ad. Tell them trying to convince somebody to stop drinking a bottle of poison in between sips of that bottle yourself is not a very convincing argument. Here's what he's called us to do is to say that we are to follow closely with Jesus so that we can be a light to other people. That's a big motivator, isn't it? Your holiness is not just between you and God either but that the Lord can use this to guide others to where he's planted you. And then Paul continues that these sins are serious that we're dealing with, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Now, this doesn't mean to say, Paul is not saying here that you can't talk about sin or that you can't talk about these things in church, otherwise he'd be breaking his own rule. But what he's saying here is that this is, this, these are things that are to be so avoided that to even speak of these things as, ooh, I can't believe that. This shouldn't be a part of our lives. But then we get to the great hope. And this is where we get in our second point. To call such abusers of God's good gifts to join in the wise life of worship. So we get here into verse 13. But... When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There is the hope. The gospel that brings light into darkness. Notice also that what is there is light does not come from any other source other than the gospel and his word. We do not fix a culture by legislation. We do not fix a culture by psychological analysis. Can you make a culture easier to live in by those things? Sure. But to really transform someone from darkness into light, you have to bring light to them. have to shine that in their lives. I think that's what he's calling for here in verse 14. I think this is a picture of conversion. Calling people out of sleeping, calling people out of death and into life and light. And then he tells us again in verse 15. He's just given us the hope that the gospel can bring to a lost and dying and dark world. And then he comes back to us, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. 
making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This is another motivator for us. Not only are we to live a holy life because this is what God has called us to do and we're supposed to do that, but that this is also the wisest thing. It doesn't always seem that way. To really be honest with other people doesn't seem like a wise approach to life. To give away our money to the church and to missions when the economy is tight doesn't seem like a wise thing to do. But following after God's ways is always wise. Even if it doesn't seem that way to us, we're still being renewed in our minds. So not only is this what God has called us to do, not only is following God's ways the wise thing to do, but we have limited time to do it. So it's to redeem the time because the days are evil. Use the moments that he has given to you for this fight. And he continues in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. This is something that means this, this, that we do not intuit our way into understanding what God is doing. But that we find what he is doing and what he wants us to do in his word. And now he goes on into verse 18. And he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now I don't know about you. But in reading this passage, this seems like a hard left turn out of nowhere. It's like, okay, we were just talking about sins that lead into destruction. We were just talking about how we need to reach out to those who are on this dark path of destruction and call them out into light. And now we've suddenly jumped into drinking alcohol. What are we doing? This doesn't seem like this has a lot of correlation with what followed before. A lot of this is helped by understanding what it was like at that time. In this culture, in Roman times... There were these lavish banquets that would be put on where basically everything that we saw in verses 3 through 7 was practiced, along with the help of copious amounts of alcohol. What Paul is calling them to say is like, this was the culture that they lived in, and to say, don't participate in that, but instead be controlled by something else. What is it that our brains are to be controlled by? Not by debauchery, but by the Spirit. So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Online, if you were to try to search this thing, you'll find all sorts of things that you'll see on YouTube. People running around. What does that mean? Is that that what being filled with the Spirit looks like? Static utterances. No, it doesn't. It looks like this in verse 19. It says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Having a song in your heart and singing it to everybody else. You ever thought about that? In the time in which we are singing together, you guys are saying something to each other? It's not just singing to God. It is that, but it's more than that. Here, I think the commentators are correct, and they're saying psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is just a lot of ways of saying the same thing. This is lifting up in praise to God. I don't don't think there are categories necessarily. 
But when we are addressing one another, we're teaching one another in singing that. Have you ever watched somebody who has just gone through a tremendous loss sing Great is Thy Faithfulness and mean it? That will teach you something more than any sermon ever could. Watching someone who used to live for themselves now sing in Christ alone. That is a beautiful thing to see from one another. And also the, the, the richness that we have been given, both in the, the Psalms and as God has been gracious to provide us with hymns written by great men of the faith, usually summarizing scripture passages for us. I am not the only one instructing on Sunday mornings. You are too. You're talking to each other. And when you're singing these things, I hope we mean them. These are statements of faith, and these are prayers as well. When we say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, that's a big thing to say. Saying, I surrender all, is a big thing to say. To make sure that we mean them. Make sure that we understand these things, such that we can't help but mean them. Because of the way that the Lord has transformed us. And then in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice once again the Trinity at work. We talk about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's one who's thanking the Father and the Son. Trinity is involved all through here. One of the greatest evidences that I've seen of conversion in, in people is the ability to give thanks in all circumstances. Because that tells me they've actually believed something. They've understood what God has done for them. There is a way to be thankful. This doesn't mean by hearing all of this, it's like, okay, well, it looks like being filled with the Spirit means never being sad. And that's not true either. Jesus was sad. In fact, he was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So this doesn't mean never being sad. We can grieve the effects of sin. We can grieve a death. Because Jesus did. Weeped outside the tomb of Lazarus. He was going to raise him in like five minutes. But he's showing us that it's not wrong to grieve. But yet this passage holds out hope for us that there can be thanksgiving even in that. That even in life's most crushing blows that there is still hope that exists for us. And that's why we can be thankful. And then finally, here on verse 21, we're going to spend more time about this in a few weeks. It's talking about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And as we'll see, as we look into the next chunk of Scripture, verses 22 on through, about midway through chapter 6, We'll see what does it look like to submit and to whom to submit and why. Verse 21 begins that section. So we'll cover that in greater detail when we get there. Next week, we'll be beginning a series on marriage, what that looks like. Why is it that God has given this to us? 
There will be a lot to say to people at all phases of life, single and otherwise. But it will begin, I will suffice it to say, that being filled with the Spirit looks like following His dictates, wherever that follows and wherever He calls us to go. So for now, what does this mean for us? What this means for us is that there are some very serious sins that we are to avoid because we want to bring light to those that are around us. But hear me say this. Just because if you have sinned in these areas, this does not mean that you're automatically going to hell or that, you, or that there is no hope for you if you have done something on that list. The scripture is full of people who have committed horrible sins, but the Lord has forgiven them anyway. That's why we don't need to shy away from how serious these things are. Because the point is not to beat people up. The point is not to guilt them. The point is to show them this is so serious. So look how good God is to forgive you. To minimize sin, to say, well, God doesn't really care about those things, is not only lying to them and setting them up for judgment, but it's also setting them up for, even if they do come to Christ, to not appreciate him when they do. Instead, we can be bold and say, no, this is a very serious thing, and you should look at my life and what I've been delivered from. But I've been delivered from it. I don't live this way anymore because God has given me a new heart. I've not turned over a new leaf. God's taken out my heart of stone and given me a heart of flesh. And here's how that can happen for you. And if that is you today, well, Jesus offers the same hope to you that he's given to me. Turn to him. Trust in him. Receive and rest upon his gift that he has given to you. There is no amount of doing enough good to undo these sins. Those sins are on the record. They're not coming off by your own effort. But instead, rest in the forgiveness that God offers to you. Leave those sins behind. You don't have to stay with that anymore. Those things are eating you alive anyway. Come to the light. Come and see the goodness that God has prepared for you. Turn from those sins and trust in Him today. If you don't know if that's been the case for you, then I would encourage you to come and seek me out about that. And I would also encourage you to pay attention to what we're about to do because this is a visual picture of what it is that God has done for you in forgiveness of your sins. So I hope this would be something that will show you a wonderful amount of light. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that you have given to us here in your word. Lord, I pray that you would apply it to our hearts and that we may see you all the better for it. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.